please remain risen and receive this reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Let's pray together. Loving God, we give you thanks for your love, which is truly beyond our understanding and for the promise of that love continuing to guide us in our lives, to help us live ever more closely to our own true self, so that we might fully participate in what you have created and called us to be and to do. In these next moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God. For you and you alone are our rock and redeemer. Amen. Our gospel today is more easily understood, I think, when we remember that there is more than one plane of reality. That in fact, there are many layers and levels of being and of consciousness. Things seen and unseen things of this world and things that are not of this world, our own inner world and our outer world. There are physical, spiritual, energetic, and mystical realities. And all of these various planes of reality are always present, each affecting the other in countless ways. Some effects are scientifically verifiable, and others are only intuited, seen as if in a mirror dimly, as it says in the scripture. But whatever the plane, whatever the reality, life is in all of it. From the physical to the metaphysical, Life is found in all of it, in different forms and expressions, and humanly, those, those pieces of life are experienced and understood differently 
depending upon all that makes human beings unique. When Jesus, in today's passage, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus is pointing to different planes of reality. In the earthly plane, in human terms, it was bad PR to start openly talking about the fact that you, as the leader of the group, were going to be humiliated and killed. That doesn't inspire support. Better to project an image of assurance and a winning message for the future. But there was another level of reality to which Jesus was deeply connected. And that is what we talked about last week, that level of reality that is the inner self, the true self, the soul, that beloved self with which God is well-pleased. The soul might be understood as a seed of selfhood that contains the spiritual DNA of our uniqueness, our God-given God-created uniqueness. It's an encoded birthright knowledge of who we are and why we're here and how we relate to one another. Jesus knew who he was. He had done the work in the wilderness. He had been tempted, and he came out knowing who he was and what he was about. He was in touch with and living from his true self. Last week, we told that story of Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus being tempted by Satan. And I suggested that Jesus' temptation is our own temptation, namely those voices and forces and impulses that would separate us from our own true self and from God. In our story today, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, Jesus calls Peter Satan, not because Peter is evil, but because in this moment in the story, Peter is suggesting, perhaps even tempting Jesus to go sideways with his own soul, to turn against the thing that he knows he is called to do and the person that he's called to be. When Jesus uses this encounter with Peter to then turn to the crowds and begin to teach, he's working within those same different planes of reality, the human and the divine, and he's talking about life in different ways. He isn't telling us or those first disciples to deny ourselves what is necessary for us to live and to thrive. Jesus is not telling any of us to deny ourselves what we need, and he's not advocating a Gnostic separation between created nature and soul, between the now and the then. Rather, Jesus is pointing to the way to truly follow him. And what is he doing here? He is staying in touch with his true self, 
and he is turning away and letting go of anything in the world that disconnects him from that true self. So for us to follow means that we will let go of anything in the world that disconnects us from our true self, our true life, from our soul. The point is made plain when Jesus says, what will it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your life? Now, I contend that this teaching is not just about an individual person, though it is that, but it's not only that. It's not about just navel-gazing or turning away from the world, but rather, it's that when we are living with deep connection to our own soul, we will be connected also deeply to God. The more we connect with God and our true self, that's what Thomas Merton called the soul, the true self, then the more we can offer ourselves fully to others and to our work in the world. There are some interpreters who will likely balk at my emphasis on the true self in relation to this passage of Scripture. They might suggest that too much emphasis on the self is the problem that Jesus is trying to address. It is true that much in our culture reflects a pretty intense focus on the Trinity of me, myself, and I. It is also true that a deep caring and empathy for others, particularly those with whom we disagree, seems to be on the decline. Author and teacher Parker Palmer, who is our guide in many ways for this, along with Jesus, during this Lenten season for this series, Palmer suggests that these realities don't don't arise from most people being full of themselves, which might be our first thought, but rather from just the opposite. He says this, that in his extensive travels and meetings with thousands of people doing workshops and trainings, that he has, quote, met too many people who suffer from an empty self, not a full of themselves, but an empty self. He says they have a bottomless pit where their identity should be, an inner void they try to fill with competitive success, consumerism, sexism, racism, or anything that might give them the illusion of being better than others. We embrace attitudes and practices such as these not because we regard ourselves as superior, but because we have no sense of self at all. Putting others down becomes a path to identity. Bishop Easterling sometimes says, I'm going to just let that walk around the room for a minute. Putting others down becomes a path to identity, a path we would not need to walk if we knew who we were. That's an end quote. There are so many things in our world that can leave us with empty selves, that can lead us to live lives disconnected from our soul. Voices and powers within ourselves and outside ourselves, 
poke and prod and stifle and twist and convince us to invest in empty promises of the world that say they're going to give us, they're going to fill us, they're going to give us what we need, but end up stealing the life that's the only one worth living. How do we get to that point? Well, Palmer begins his answer to that question by talking about the outer and inner lives of children. He cites the C.S. Lewis classic Chronicles of Narnia and how young Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy go through their wardrobe and from their everyday existence and cross into a parallel universe, a different plane of reality, a universe of light and shadow, of mystery and moral demand, confronting the daunting and bracing challenges of the inner journey. But, Palmer says, quote, when we turn from literature to life, this charming feature of childhood soon disappears as the outer world becomes more demanding, and today it presses in on children at an obscenely early age. We stop going into our rooms and shutting the door and walking into the wardrobe and entering the world of soul. And the closer we get to adulthood, the more we stifle the imagination that that inner journey requires. And why do we do that? He says, because imagining other possibilities for our lives would remind us of the perhaps painful gap between who we most truly are and the role that we play in the so-called real world. As we become more obsessed with succeeding or at least surviving, doing whatever we feel we have to do in the world, we can lose touch with our souls and disappear into our roles, roles that may not have anything to do with our truest self. My first realization of this truth happened when I was about 22 years old. I had wandered off from home to go to graduate school. And I began to realize, with that distance between me and my home, that so much of my life was about trying to meet others' expectations, and that much of my own sense of worth up to that point was found in outward achievements and by being affirmed by, to be frank, the men in my life, my father, my coaches, my university mentor, who was a man, and whatever boyfriend I happened to have at the time. <laughs> I began to have a conscious sense that I had, had lost myself somewhere along the way. What did I want? What did I feel? What did I need? All those questions were asked based on somebody else, all the time. I didn't know the answer for myself. Who was I, if not the daughter, the star player, the A student, whatever it is? Who am I? It was painful and difficult to come to those realizations. I had lost touch with my soul. 
and disappeared into all my roles. Palmer says, we arrive in this world undivided and integral and whole, but sooner or later we erect a wall between our inner and our outer lives, trying to protect what is within us or to deceive the people around us. Only when the pain of our dividedness becomes more than we can bear do most of us embark on an inner journey toward reconnecting with our soul. My journey toward reconnection started over 30 years ago, and let me tell you, it's a lifelong journey. To help us understand what I'm talking about, I'm bringing in what Palmer, now I reminded us last week that Parker Palmer is a Quaker, and he makes a joke in the book that I'm using as a guide for our series that um, the closest that Quakers come to PowerPoint are things like this. <laughs> so um, you should have gotten one of these in your, in your worship guide. Um, and what I'm going to, what, what, what this is about, let me, let me share what this is. Um, if you are, by the way, if you're joining us online, you can easily participate. Just tear off a strip of paper that looks sort of like this. Um, and on one side of the paper that here, we have here in the sanctuary, it says image, influence, and impact. This is, this is, these are words that kind of reflect what, what Palmer calls our onstage life, our outward-facing life. And they point to some of our hopes and fears, the questions like, Is anyone listening to me or caring about me? Am I making any difference? How do I look while I'm doing what I'm doing? All of that stuff, sort of this outward-facing thing. On the other side are what Palmer calls your backstage life, those parts of you that, that you hold a little closer. And these words are a little bit more reflective, things like ideas, intuitions, feelings, values, faith. You can just hold your, your strip for a, little, for a little object lesson in a minute. Parker Palmer suggests that the relation between our onstage and our backstage life unfolds in stages. He writes, phase one comes when we arrive in this world with no separation at all between our inner and outer world. This is why most of us love to be around babies and young children. What we see is what we get. He says, in the presence of a newly minted human being, I am reminded of what wholeness looks like. And I am sometimes moved to wonder, whatever became of me? Phase two is that long passage of life when we begin to build barriers between inner truth and outer world. And I'm not just talking about the normal healthy boundaries that we learn as we mature. This is something deeper that we're, we're thinking about together. So if you hold your strip of paper with your inner world, your ideas, intuitions, feelings, and all that stuff facing you, this represents the wall of separation that we erect as we depart childhood en route to becoming adolescents and adults. Some children, sadly, need to have this wall at home. Others don't need it till they get to school. But sooner or later, everyone needs a wall for the same reason to protect our inward vulnerabilities against external threats. As it starts to dawn on us that the world is a dangerous place, we wall off the most fragile parts of ourselves, beliefs that we hold, dimensions of our own identities, in hopes of protecting them, sometimes against great odds. 
I think about the day that I came home from school. I remember this as clear as if it were yesterday. I came home from school and I announced to my mother, I am no longer going to cry on the playground. I'm just not going to do it anymore. She looked like she wasn't sure that that was going to actually work, but I had made a decision. Some part of myself had realized that I needed to wall off that tender part of me. I also imagine that most of us who have lived a while, even a little while, can think of times when we have, either as teenagers, young adults, or older adults, have been desperate so desperate to to be included or to be liked or to be popular or to be connected that we have done things, acted in ways that really had nothing at all to do with who we really were, but we were just doing it in order to try to get the thing that we thought we needed. And I also, I think about the sacred stories of beloved LGBTQ siblings who, for their very own safety and well-being, have at various points had to put up walls between their true self and their outward life. There are many painful reasons that people believe they can escape the world's cruelty only by wearing a disguise. And as Palmer says, sooner or later, we all build walls between our onstage life and our backstage life. Often the onstage life of doing all in our power to project whatever we think we need to project is simply a front for our true selves who hide out backstage feeling vulnerable and afraid. And the thing is that the more we try to hide parts of ourselves from the world, we also end up hiding from those who are closest to us and even ultimately from ourselves. Parker says, quote, live behind a wall long enough and the true self you tried to hide from the world disappears from your own view. The wall itself and the world outside it become all that you know. Eventually, you even forget that the wall is there and that hidden behind it is someone called you. I'll never forget the conversation that I had with one of my very dearest friends who had, she was a goal setter in a very different way from me, very clear goals. And she had accomplished all of her goals. She had gotten the great paying job that she wanted. She had a family and children, had a lovely home. She was in good health. From all outward appearances, she was living the dream. But to me, her oldest and trusted friend, she said to me one time, quite simply, is this all there is? I think she had lost touch with her soul and disappeared into her roles. It's so easy to get stuck on one side of the wall and to forget or lose touch with the you that's on the other side. And when that happens, when that happens, when you lose touch with the energizing, clarifying, grounding, divinely created soul that animates all your living, when that happens, even the amazing parts of your life are difficult to fully appreciate or even see. Today, Jesus asks, What will it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your life? This isn't an either-or question, but is rather touching on various planes of reality at the same time. 
Jesus' question is not asking you to be a martyr. Jesus' question is not asking you to feel badly about your accomplishments or the good things that you experience in the world. It is, I believe, pressing you to follow Jesus by paying attention to your soul. For it is in that part of yourself that you connect with God, that you connect with life in greater fullness and wholeness and power. Choosing to live connected to our true self and our deepest call is not easy. It can be really, really risky. But when we are rooted in true self, we can act in ways that are life-giving for us and for all those whose lives we touch. Whatever we do to care for true self is, in the long run, a gift to the world. It is possible to abandon the most precious and vital parts of your being and to live on one side of the wall your whole life, to live, to live out here all your life. It's possible. But I hear Jesus asking the question, is that the life you want to save? Is that the life you need to save?